0: "'It was made of a black metal with a meshwork of silver and gold carvings "'that gave it a rich and sinister tastelessness. "'The metal was Octiron, intrinsically magical. "'I made this, you know,' he said. "'They all said you couldn't make a staff out of metal. "'They said they should only be of wood, but they were wrong. "'I put a lot of myself into it. "'I shall give it to him.' "'He ran his hands lovingly along the staff, which gave off a faint tone.' He repeated almost to himself, "'I I put a lot of myself into it.' "'It is a good staff,' said Death. Ipslaw held it in the air and looked down at his eighth son, who gave a gurgle. "'He wanted a daughter,' he said. Death shrugged. Ipslaw gave him a look compounded of bewilderment and rage. "'What is he?' "'The eighth son of an eighth son of an eighth son,' said Death, unhelpfully.' The wind whipped at his robe, driving the black clouds overhead. What does that make him? A sorcerer, as you are well aware. Thunder rolled on cue. What is his destiny? shouted Ipslaw above the rising gale. Death shrugged again. He was good at it. Sorcerers make their own destiny. They touch the earth lightly. Ipslaw leaned on the staff, drumming on it with his fingers, apparently lost in the maze of his own thoughts. His left eyebrow twitched. No, he said softly, no. I will make his destiny for him. I advise against it. Be quiet and listen when I tell you that they drove me out with their books and their rituals and their law. They call themselves wizards, and they had less magic in their whole fat bodies than I have in my little finger. Banished, <laughs> me, for showing that I was human. And what would humans be without love? rare said death nevertheless listen they drove us here to the end of the world and that killed her they tried to take my staff away Ipslaw was screaming above the noise of the wind well i still have some power left he snarled and i say that my son shall go to the unseen university and wear the arch chancellor's hat and the wizards of the world shall bow to him and he shall show them what lies in their deepest hearts their craven Greedy hearts! He'll show the world its true destiny, and there will be no magic greater than his. No. And the strange thing about the quiet way death spoke the word was this it was louder than the roaring of the storm. It jerked Ibslaw back to momentary sanity. Ibslaw rocked back and forth uncertainly. What? he said. I said no. Nothing is final. Nothing is absolute, except me, of course. Such tinkering with destiny could mean the downfall of the world. There must be a chance, however small. The lawyers of fate demand a loophole in every prophecy. Ipslaw stared at Death's implacable face. I must give them a chance? Yes. Tap, 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 went Ipslaw's fingers on the metal of the star. Then... They shall have their chance, he said, when hell freezes over. No, I am not allowed to enlighten you, even by default, about current temperatures in the next world. Then, Ipslaw hesitated, then they shall have their chance when my son throws his staff away. No wizard would ever throw his staff away. The bond is too great. Yet it is possible, you must agree. Death appeared to consider this. Must was not a word he was accustomed to hearing, but he seemed to concede the point. Agree. Is that a small enough chance for you? Sufficiently molecular. Ipslaw relaxed a little. In a voice that was nearly normal, he said, I don't regret it, you know. (laughs) I would do it all again. Children are our hope for the future. There is no hope for the future. What does it contain, then? Me. Besides you, I mean. Death gave him a puzzled look. I'm sorry? The storm reached its howling peak overhead. A seagull went past, backwards. I meant, said Ipslaw bitterly, what is there in this world that makes living worthwhile? Death thought about it. Mmm, cats, he said eventually. Cats are nice. Curse you! Many have... How much longer do I have? Death pulled a large hourglass from the secret recesses of his robe. The two bulbs were enclosed in bars of black and gold, and the sand was nearly all in the bottom one. Oh, about nine seconds? Ipslaw pulled himself up to his full and still impressive height, and extended the gleaming metal staff towards the child. A hand like a little pink crab reached out from the blanket and grasped it. "'Then let me be the first and last wizard in the history of the world "'to pass on his staff to his eighth son,' he said slowly and sonorously. "'And I charge him to use it to—' "'I should hurry up if I were you.' "'The full,' said Ipslaw, "'becoming the mightiest!' "'The lightning screamed from the heart of the cloud, "'hit Ipslore on the point of his hat, crackled down his arm, "'flashed along the staff, and struck the child. "'The wizard vanished in a wisp of smoke. The staff glowed green, then white, then merely red-hot. The child smiled in his sleep. When the thunder had died away, Death reached down slowly and picked up the boy, who opened his eyes. They glowed golden from the inside. For the first time in what, for want of any better word, must be called his life, Death found himself looking at a stare that he found hard to return. The eyes seemed to be focused on a point several inches inside his skull. I did not mean for that to happen, said the voice of Ipslaw from out of the empty air. Is he harmed? No. Death tore his gaze away from that fresh-knowing smile. He contained the power. He is a sorcerer. No doubt he will survive much worse. And now you will come with me. No. Yes, you are dead, you see. Death looked around for Ipslaw's wavering shade. "'and failed to find it. "'Where are you?' "'In the staff!' "'Death leaned on his side and sighed. "'Foolish! How easily could I cut you loose!' "'Not without destroying the staff,' said the voice of Ipslaw, "'and it seemed to death that there was a new thick exultant quality to it. "'And now the child has accepted the staff, "'you cannot destroy it without destroying him. <laughs> "'And that you cannot do without upsetting destiny.' My last magic. Rather neat, I feel. Death prodded the staff. It crackled, and sparks crawled obscenely along its length. Strangely enough, he wasn't particularly angry. Anger is an emotion, and for emotion you need glands, and Death didn't have much truck with glands, and needed a good run at it to get angry. But he was mildly annoyed. He sighed again. People were always trying this sort of thing. On the other hand, it was quite interesting to watch, and at least this was a bit more original than the usual symbolic chess game, which Death always dreaded because he could never remember how the knight was supposed to move. You're only putting off the inevitable. That's what being a is all about. But what precisely do you expect to gain? I shall be by my son's side. I shall teach him, even though he won't know it. I shall guide his understanding, and when he's ready, I shall guide his steps. Tell me, how did you guide the steps of your other sons? I drove them out. They dared to argue with me. They would not listen to what I would teach them. But this one will. Is this wise? The staff was silent. Beside it, the boy chuckled at the sound of a voice only he could hear. There was no analogy for the way in which Great Artuin, the world turtle, moved against the galactic night. When you're ten thousand miles long, your shell pocked with meteor craters and frosted with comet ice, there is absolutely nothing you can realistically be like, except yourself. So Great Artuin swam slowly through the interstellar deeps, like the largest turtle there has ever been carrying on its carapace the four huge elephants that bore on their backs the vast, glittering, waterfall-fringed circle of the disc World, which exists either because of some impossible blip on the curve of probability, or because the gods enjoy a joke as much as anyone. More than most people, in fact. Near the shores of the Circle Sea, in the ancient, sprawling city of Ankh-Morpork, on a velvet cushion on a ledge high up in the unseen university, was a hat. It was a good hat. It was a magnificent hat. It was pointy, of course, with a wide floppy brim. But after disposing of these basic details, the designer had really got down to business. There was gold lace on there, and pearls, and bands of pure vermin, and sparkling ark stones like rhinestones, but different river. When it comes to glittering objects, wizards have all the taste and self-control of a deranged magpie. And some incredibly tasteless sequins, and a dead giveaway, of course, a circle of octorines. Since they weren't in a strong magical field at the moment, they weren't glowing and looked like rather inferior diamonds. Spring had come to Ankh-Morpork. It wasn't immediately apparent, but there were signs that were obvious to the Cognoscenti. For example, the scum on the river Ankh, that great wide slow waterway that served the double city as reservoir, sewer and frequent morgue, had turned a particularly iridescent green. The city's drunken rooftops sprouted mattresses and bolsters as the winter bedding was put out to air in the weak sunshine, and in the depths of musty cellars the beams twisted and groaned when their dry sap responded to the ancient call of root and forest. Birds nested amongst the gutters and eaves of Unseen University, although it was noticeable that however great the pressure on the nesting sites, they never ever made nests in the invitingly open mouths of the gargoyles that lined the rooftops, much to the gargoyles' disappointment. A kind of spring had even come to the ancient university itself. Tonight would be the Eve of Small Gods, and a new Arch-Chancellor would be elected. Well, not exactly elected, because wizards didn't have any truck with all this undignified voting business, and it was well known that Arch-Chancellors were selected by the will of the gods, and this year it was a pretty good bet that the gods would see their way clear to selecting old Vivid Wazy Goose, who was a decent old boy, and had been patiently waiting his turn for years. The Arch-Chancellor of Unseen University was the official leader of all the wizards on the disc. Once upon a time it had meant that he would be the most powerful in the handling of magic, but times were a lot quieter now, and to be honest senior wizards tended to look upon actual magic as a bit beneath them. They tended to prefer administration, which was safer and nearly as much fun, and also big dinners. And so the long afternoon wore on. The hat squatted on its faded cushion in Wazy Goose's chambers, while he sat in his tub in front of a fire and soaped his beard. Other wizards dozed in their studies or took a gentle stroll around the garden in order to work up an appetite for the evening's feast. About a dozen steps was usually considered quite sufficient. In the great hall, under the carved or painted stairs of two hundred earlier arch-chancellors, the butler's staff set out the long tables and benches. In the vaulted maze of the kitchens, well, the imagination should need no assistance— it should include lots of grease and heat and shouting, Bats of caviar, whole roast oxen, strings of sausages like paper chains strung from wall to wall, the head chef himself at work in one of the cold rooms, putting the finishing touches to a model of the university carved for some inexplicable reason out of butter. He kept doing this every time there was a feast. Butter swans, butter buildings, whole rancid, greasy, yellow menageries. And he enjoyed it so much no one had the heart to tell him to stop. In his own labyrinth of cellars, the butler prowled amongst his casks, decanting and tasting. The air of expectation had even spread to the ravens who inhabited the Tower of Art, eight hundred feet high and reputedly the oldest building in the world. Its crumbling stones supported thriving miniature forests high above the city's rooftops. Entire species of beetles and small mammals had evolved up there, and since people rarely climbed it these days, owing to the tower's distressing tendency to sway in the breeze, the ravens had it all to themselves. Now they were flying around in a state of some agitation, like gnats before a thunderstorm. If anyone below is going to take any notice of them, it might be a good idea. Something horrible was about to happen. You can tell, can't you? You're not the only one. What got into them? Shouted Rincewind above the din. The librarian ducked as a leather-bound grimoire shot out from its shelf and jerked to a mid-air halt on the end of its chain. Then he dived, rolled, and landed on a copy of Maleficio's Discovery of Demonology that was industriously bashing at its lectern. "'Look!' he said. Rincewind pushed his shoulder against a trembling bookshelf and forced its rustling volumes back into place with his knees. The noise was terrible. Books of magic have a sort of life of their own. Some have altogether too much. For example, the first edition of the Necrotelecomicon has to be kept between iron plates. The true arte of levitazione has spent the last 150 years up in the rafters, and Ge Forge's compendium of sex magic is kept in a vat of ice in a room all by itself, and there's a strict rule that it can only be read by wizards who are over 80 and, if possible, dead. But even the everyday grimoires and incunabula on the main shelves were as restless and nervy as the inmates of a chicken house with something rank scrabbling under the door. From their shut covers came a muffled scratching like claws. What did you say? screamed Rincewind. Ooh.